Today's scripture reading comes from all over the book of Proverbs. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the director of youth ministry here. If you don't know me, it's my absolute joy to be opening up the Word of God with you this morning. But before we jump into our texts, let's just pray together and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a place and an opportunity to open it and study it, to look at it, and to find joy in it through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would just move amongst us today through your Holy Spirit, that our minds might be renewed, and that we might know you in a deeper way. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Everyone I know has a five-year plan. In fact, I think our plans are one of the things that we chat about most when we are trying to get to know someone for the first time. You know, you're over wine, you're, you're over wine and appies at someone's house, and you're just chatting about, hey, what's your plan with life? And even most employers will ask during the interview process something along the lines of, well, where do you see yourself in five years? And all of us, more or less, have an answer to that question because we all do have a plan, right? I have a plan. And it includes all sorts of stuff from planning about when I'm going to have kids to when I want to graduate from, from uh, school to uh, what my future career is going to look like, right? Whatever it is, I have a plan. But what happens when our plans don't go as planned? You know, what happens when you find out that you didn't get that job or that a loved one in your family is sick or that you can't have children? What happens when, when your plans don't go as planned? Well, I want to tell you the story today of Adoniram Judson. Judson was born in 1788 to a Christian family, and from a very young age, he showed an intense degree of intellectual ability. You know, at 12 years old, he had mastered biblical Greek, which is crazy. And then in 1804, he was accepted into Brown University. So I'll let you do the math there, but it's pretty young. And he consistently achieved really high honors in his classes. And you know, not unlike today, at university, he met a lot of people that made him question his faith. He had one quite skeptical friend named Jacob Eames, who did everything he possibly could to crush Adoniram's faith. And he was successful at this. He, he did crush his faith. So Adoniram decided that after graduating, he'd go west, and he was going to seek out fame and fortune. So he went, and he failed. And disheartened by the fact that fame and fortune didn't come his way, he decided that he was just going to make his way back home with his tail between his legs. So you know he got on a horse, and he began making the long journey back home. And, and like any long journey, he needed a place to stay for the night. So you know he gets off the horse interstate and then like finds an inn. And he's staying at this inn. And as he's laying in bed, all he can hear in the room next to his is groanings and moanings of pain. And as he's laying there, he's thinking about death and suffering all night. In the morning, he asks the innkeeper, and he says, what happened to the person uh, in the room next to mine? 
And the innkeeper informed him that a young man had died in the night. So he asked what the man's name was. And the reply that he got forever changed the trajectory of his life. A Jacob Eames from the College of Providence. Rocked to the core by this, Adoniram gave his life to Christ that night. And as he grew in Christ and he got married, he was filled with this zeal for the missions field. And he decided that he would go to Burma, which is now known as Myanmar. So they went and on the ship over, Anne, his wife, got very, very ill and gave birth to their first child. And in the midst of, of, of the joy of welcoming this first child into the world, it died. When they arrived in Burma, uh, Anne was so sick that she needed to be carried off the ship in a stretcher. But as her health slowly recovered, she became pregnant again, and this time she gave birth to a son. And they named that son Roger. Roger lived for seven months, and then he died. Shortly after this, war broke out between Burma and England, and Adoniram was in prison because he was presumed to be a spy. And during his imprisonment, he suffered greatly. At one point, he was dragged with chains across the hot tropical sand until his back was completely lacerated. But all this suffering he faced was met with overwhelming joy when Anne came to visit him with a newborn baby, Maria. And Adoniram was so overjoyed by the, the beauty of this new life that he wrote 24 stanzas of poetry for her that, that day in prison. You know, eventually he was released from prison and he arrived uh, home to a very, very sick Anne who died shortly after he arrived home. Six months later, Maria died. Overtaken by grief, Adoniram went into the jungle and he built a hut and he lived in it for 40 days. He had been so overwhelmed by death and suffering that he even dug his own grave beside the hut and he would sit over the grave just contemplating death. So here's my question for us this morning. Was all of this a part of his plan? You know, when Adoniram sat down with Anne to make a five-year plan before they left for Burma, was all of this suffering and death included in it? I'm willing to bet that it wasn't. You know, I'm guessing the plan in his mind was to faithfully serve the Lord, see the gospel through, through the mission, and then see people come to know Jesus. Which leaves us with a question. Why is it so often the case that all the good things that we plan don't come to fruition? I mean, doesn't the Bible promise us that if we act righteously and we do good, that all of this stuff, sort of stuff isn't going to happen to us? You know, look at Proverbs 21, verse 5. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You know, how do we make sense of a proverb like this when we know it's not always the case that our plans lead to abundance? Well, today we're going to look directly at that question by looking at how we make sense of plans and providence in the book of Proverbs. And what we need to immediately recognize is that we are faced with a tension in the texts. You see, we are called to plan, but we are reminded over and over and over again that ultimately God is in control. 
You see, people are responsible for making wise plans, but God is sovereignly ruling and reigning and controlling things in the midst of that, which then leaves us with a tension we need to wrestle with. So, so all I want to do this morning is I want to wrestle with this tension between our plans and God's sovereignty and try to understand it by looking at three things from Proverbs. And these three things are, one, the plans of people, two, the providence of God, and three, the point of tension. And by looking at these things, it's my hope that we will see that God's purposes work in our plans to bring about great great salvation. God's purposes work in our plans to bring about great salvation. So let's jump in and look at our first point, the plans of people. We need to recognize, first and foremost, that planning is a good thing. Look at Proverbs 21, verse 5 with me again. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. See, right away, we see some sort of link between planning and abundance, and that should at least suggest to us a little bit that planning is a good thing that we should actually be doing. But I also think we need to be reminded from weeks earlier that Proverbs are not promises. You see, Proverbs actually have a deeper meaning than simply a cause and effect formula. They're not saying to us, just do this and this will happen. Rather, Proverbs are probing into the meaning of life and then they're drawing lessons out from that. You know, I really like the way one commentator, Alan Ross, summarizes all of this. He says, in general... Proverbs draws lessons by reflecting on the way things are in relation to right values and right conduct. In other words, if you act in righteousness and if you are obedient to God, then the Proverbs offer us some likely outcomes to that. But these outcomes are not promises. You see, Proverbs' emphasis on the goodness of making righteous plans proves the importance of wise planning but it doesn't promise an outcome to that planning. So when we look back at Proverbs 21.5 now, we know that this isn't promising us surefire abundance with just great planning, but it's teaching us about the goodness of wise planning and teaching us to walk in a way so that we do make wise plans. So let's look at another, another example. Look with me at Proverbs 15, verse 22, where it says, "'Without counsel, plans fail.'" But with many advisors, they succeed. Is this a promise to us? Well, no. Knowing what we do about Proverbs means that this is teaching us a truism about the wisdom of having advisors as we make plans. And all of us here know that this can't be a promise because there's been a lot of times in our life where having advisors doesn't lead to success. So picture this with me for a minute here. Imagine this with me. You're a kid again, all right? You're at the park, and you're playing on the swings. Or, or maybe you don't even need to imagine this. Maybe you still like to play on the swings as an adult. And you know what? No judgment here. If you like that, that's fine. But just so you know, like swings are for kids, so maybe leave it for them. But anyways, you're on the swing, all right? And some hoodlum comes up to you, and he says, Hey, I dare you to jump off the swing as far as you possibly can. And you're like, Well, he dared me to do it, so I have to do it, right? But of course... You are a wise child, and so you don't do it right away. You start you know, pumping your legs really hard to get height, to get speed, all that stuff. You want to judge the landing. And of course, to work up your courage, 
you get some highly skilled playground advisors to give you some input on this, right? Next thing you know, kids are giving you advice, telling you the speed you're going to need, the height you're going to need. Maybe the math whiz kids are telling you the exact trajectory you're going to need for the furthest jump, you know? But they all agree on one thing with you. This is a good idea. (laughs) So you take one more swing and you let yourself fly through the air like you've never flown through the air before, only to land flat on your face. You see, many advisors doesn't automatically mean that our plans succeed. Now, I know that this is a really silly example, but we all know that this principle holds true, right? Some of us here have probably listened to financial advisors only to get bad advice, and and it's ended up hurting us so much so that we're still trying to recover from our losses. Or maybe some of us here have taken bad, bad marriage advice, and we've just ended up in the doghouse or something, you know? You see, many advisors doesn't always mean successful plans. So does all of this make plans and planning a bad thing then? Well, no, not at all. Planning, when done in a godly way, is a good thing, and it's actually a very biblical concept. When we take stock of all that God has given us, and then we begin formulating plans to best use those things, that is an extremely biblical practice. I think a good example of this can be found in Matthew 25, where Jesus tells us the parable of the talents. In this parable, a man, he decides to go on a journey, and as he's preparing to leave, he gathers all of his servants together to make sure that his finances are in order. And he gives each of his servants a certain portion of these finances to take care of and then increase for him. So he gives them a cut, and then he leaves on his journey. And the first guy he gives money to immediately begins trading with it, and he makes a profit. And the second guy does the exact same thing, and he too makes a profit, doubling his money. But the last guy, he takes that money, he digs a big hole, and he just throws it in there and buries it. So the master, he eventually returns, and he calls all the the servants back to figure out the accounts with them. And obviously, he's very pleased with the first two guys, right? They doubled his money. Who wouldn't be pleased with someone who doubled their money? But then the last guy comes forward, and he says this. He says, Master... I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming... I should have received what was my own with interest. You see, the master here chastises him for failing to make a plan in accordance with the knowledge that he already had about his master's character. His plan to just hide the money away is found out to be unwise because he should have known better than that. But if you know the story, then you'll know that the wise planners are rewarded. Look what we read in verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, planning is something that is good. It's something that we are called to do. But here we learn that there's also this weight 
of responsibility to planning. As we plan and put those plans and actions into action, we are actually responsible for them. We are held 100% responsible for the things we do and the plans that we make. Which brings us then right back to our point of tension in Proverbs between our plans and God's sovereign will. So let's turn and let's look at our second point, which is God's providence, and we'll try to flesh this out a little bit more. Look with me at Proverbs 21, verse 30. It says this, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. See, nothing we do and nothing we bring to the table can challenge God's sovereignty. He is in control. Now, if you've never heard of the term sovereignty before, that's, that's totally okay. Basically, just so you know, it's God's rule and God's reign in the universe. And it means that he is the supreme power over everything. It means that he has control over everything that happens. And some of us here, when we hear that definition of sovereignty, kind of have a tendency to recoil away from this. You know, we don't like the idea of something or someone being in control of our lives. And you know what? We don't even need to go very far to see this play out. Just look at the backlash that Facebook has been facing for collecting and using data to influence people's decision-making processes. People really, really don't like the idea that there is anyone in control or anyone in a seat of power above them. But I think we need to be reminded today that this feeling we have shouldn't extend to God. You see, God is allowed to be sovereign over the universe. And we're told this all throughout the scriptures. Look at Psalm 135, verse 6. It says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in, all the, in the seas and all deeps. God does what he wants with who he wants when he wants. And this is a very difficult reality for us to grasp because it it, it goes against everything that we've been taught to believe about ourselves. So we end up kind of responding to this truth by thinking, well, that's not fair. But you know what? We're not actually the first people to have thought this. The church in Rome, they struggled with this very issue. And Paul had to respond to it in Romans 9, 19 through 21. And this is what he says. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? You see, people throughout history have always struggled with God's sovereignty. And Paul's response here to the church in Rome is that we are the molded and he is the molder. He created us, and and therefore, he sovereignly rules over us, and that's okay. But, it's not like God just sovereignly rules on a whim whenever he chooses and whenever he wants. You know, it's not like he's just some totalitarian dictator that says, you know, servant, get me this. He doesn't do that. God actually has an eternal plan that in his sovereign will, he's working to accomplish. And when God's plan and God's sovereignty come together, we actually have a special name for that. And the name for that is God's providence. 
Louis Burkhoff, he's an American theologian, he gives us a good definition of providence. He says that providence is the continued, exi- the continued exercise of the divine energy, whereby the creator preserves all his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. You see, God has an appointed end. He has a plan in place that in his sovereignty, he is working towards accomplishing. Which brings us back to Proverbs 21, verse 30. It says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. You see, if God has a plan and he rules over everything, then nothing can prevent him from accomplishing his purposes. One of my favorite stories in the Bible that highlights this reality is found in 1 Kings 22. In this story, there's an evil king and he's ruling over Israel. His name is Ahab. And he decides to partner up with the king of Judah, whose name is Jehoshaphat, so that they can then go to war with Syria. But the king of Judah, he's a little bit cautious about this, this plan of the king of Israel's, and he suggests that maybe, just maybe, it would be a good idea if they inquired of the Lord first. So, you know, Ahab gathers all the prophets in Israel together, and they all say this. They all say, do it. Go to war. God's going to give you the victory. You got this. But the king of Judah, he's no idiot, right? He recognizes that these are just obviously Ahab's yes men that he's kind of collected around himself. So he asks, is there another prophet that can speak into this situation? So they bring in this prophet Micaiah, who says basically the same thing. He says, go to war, you'll succeed. But Ahab has a long history where this prophet has given him a bunch of unfavorable prophecies. So now Ahab's a little bit skeptical of this prophet's prophecy. And he says to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord. Which is kind of funny, right? Because it suggests that this guy has like lied to him a bunch and like he's been tricked a bunch by this guy or something like that. But then Micaiah responds by saying this, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. In other words, if you go to war with Syria, Ahab, you will die And Israel will be without a master. So what do you think happens? What do you think Ahab decides he's going to do in light of this? Well, he doesn't listen. He decides he's going to go to war anyways. And he hatches a plan just in case Micaiah was right. He decides he's going to disguise himself so that if things go south, he'll be unnoticed as the king and he won't be killed. But he also tells the king of Judah to wear his robes so that they will think he's the only king on the battlefield. And that way, if things go wrong, Ahab's likely going to be okay and this poor king of Judah is going to take all the flack and he's going to be killed. So if you think about it, it's a pretty devious plan to make sure that this prophecy of the Lord does not come true. So let's read the text and see what happens. 1 Kings 22, 29 through 34. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, 
but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. You see, this elaborate plan of Ahab's where he was going to deceive people into thinking he was someone else did absolutely nothing to stop God's plan from coming to fruition. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So we're left then with this point of tension. And that point of tension is the fact that we are 100% responsible for the things we do and the plans we make. And that God is 100% sovereign over our plans in his providence. And we see this in our Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Both of these Proverbs highlight the tension between our plans and God's sovereign will. So how does this work? How can we be 100% responsible for our plans And how can God be 100% sovereign at the same time? And the answer is that I don't know. (laughs) I don't know exactly how this works. But God does. And he's revealed it to us in scripture. Which is precisely why we need to learn to live in this point of tension between the two. You know, J.I. Packer, he's a theologian from Vancouver. He tries to make sense of this tension in a little book that he wrote called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in that book, he describes these two things as being in an antinomy. Now, an antinomy is something that appears contradictory, but in fact is not contradictory. So, for example, there used to be a lot of debate about what light was. And I don't understand all the science, but essentially, in certain situations, light acted as if it were a particle. And they could actually measure this in labs. They could see this in labs. But at the same time, experiments were being done, and they could see this, that showed light acting as if it was a wave. So which is it? Was it a particle, or was it a wave? Well, the answer that people came to was it's both. It's a particle and it's a wave. Both of these things are equally true. And this is similar to what we see in the Bible about our responsibility and God's sovereign providence. Both of these things are equally true. And if we decide to lean too far one way or the other, then we are going to fundamentally undercut the gospel. See, if you lean too much on human responsibility then inevitably we begin to think that our plans and our actions carry more weight than they actually do. And we end up believing this subtle lie that somehow our planning and our purposes can now save us. And this is simply not true. 
We can't somehow plan our way up to heaven. But if we lean too hard on God's sovereignty, then we start to believe that nothing we do matters. So we don't make plans for the future. We don't share the gospel with our neighbors. We walk in unrepentant sins, believing that Jesus' forgiveness and grace covers even this continual, intentional sinning. And we become defeatist about our own faith. You see, Paul in the book of Romans actually responds to this very thing in chapter 6, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Simply put, both of these things matter. They are in attention. We are 100% responsible for the plans that we make. And God is 100% sovereign over everything that takes place. And we see this tension being played out all over the scriptures. But I think there's one example of this that stands above all the rest. And that's the example of Jesus. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, he came and lived among us, literally bringing in the kingdom of God through healing, through preaching, through proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. He never did anything wrong, he, nothing deserving death. He never sinned. And we, in our infinite wisdom, put a plan in place to put him to death. You know, we took him as people and beat him. We mocked him and we put him on the cross to die. But what we planned against him, God used to bring about our forgiveness. So that by the plan we put in place to kill him, we might actually be saved from our sins and that through his resurrection from the dead, we might experience a new life. You see, Jesus is the ultimate picture of this tension between plans and sovereignty at play. And Jesus himself actually acknowledges this tension in Matthew 20, verse 18, where he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged. And he'll be raised on the third day. You see, the very plan to put him to death is going to be the thing which brings about his resurrection and the defeat of death. And this should give us hope. We're able to hope and trust in God's sovereignty because he has shown that he isn't against us, but that he is for us. He has proven that in his son Jesus when he sovereignly chose to use the plans and purposes of people to die for those very people's sins and then restore them to new life. We have hope because we know that what is evil in the moment is actually working towards our salvation in Christ. You see, when we are in Christ, God is for us in his sovereignty. We've been given the promise that in Christ, all things work for our good. Look at Romans eight twenty six. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In other words, we don't need to fear God's sovereign will as if our plans are somehow better than his will. 
God's sovereign will, his providential plan for us, is for us in all things. So how, how should we live in light of this fact? Well, first, I think we need to recognize that, that planning and plans are good things. See, we should plan. Which means that if, if you're here today and you're maybe being lazy and, and you're waiting on the Lord to move in your life, then maybe what we really need is to actually start doing something. Maybe we need to just begin moving forward and taking action because what we do matters and it has a significance to it. Secondly, I think we need to hold these things in tension and simply being, be okay with not knowing it all. See, if we lean too far to the left or the right, then we undermine the gospel. We need to always be asking ourselves over and over and over again if we're holding this tension or if we're focusing too much on either side. You know, if we become absolutely obsessed with our plans and our planning, do we get all out of whack and, and everything goes crazy in our life when things don't go our way? Are we too focused on the sovereignty of God and have just become apathetic and lazy and don't do anything? These are the questions that we need to be wrestling with as we hold this tension in place. And finally, I think we need to be reminded this morning that we do not see the end of God's providence. You know, maybe like Adoniram Judson, we're in the midst of significant suffering. And we need this reminder. You know, maybe you've lost a job and it's just impossible to trust God in his sovereignty in this moment. Or maybe there's strife and there's anger in your marriage and it just seems to crush any sense of God's bigger picture and God's bigger plan for your marriage. Or maybe loved ones have died or are sick and to hear some young punk get up here and preach on God's sovereign plan in the midst of all that suffering is just absolutely enraging to you. And you know what? I understand that. I really do. I get it. And in these moments... We need to realize, and what we need to hear, isn't the cliche that God has a plan for us and that he wants us to prosper. But what we need to hear is that God has revealed his ultimate plan in Jesus Christ. And what we find in that plan is that God is for us. That he is unequivocally, undeniably, and unrestrainedly for us. You know, after Adoniram Judson spent 40 days wrestling with grief and sorrow at his jungle hut, he came out of the forest and he continued his work of translating the New Testament into the Burmese language. And today, 200,000 Christians in Burma can trace their roots back to his work. You see, God had plans to use his work even in the midst of all his suffering to see Christ go forward and the gospel proclaimed. He never met these 200,000 Christians. He never knew them. He never even saw them. But they are in Christ because of him and because of his work and because of his sufferings. You see, God's purposes work in our plans to bring about great salvation. Let's stand as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, 
please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.